Uh, good morning, everyone. My name is William Pomeranz, and I'm Deputy Director of the Kennan Institute. And we are delighted to have with us today for a book talk, Dr. Emil Dreitzer, uh, talking about his memoir in the Jaws of the Crocodile. Uh, Dr. Dreitzer spent a decade contributing to the magazine uh, Crocodile, uh, the major party-sponsored satire magazine known for his sharp, sharp tongue essays and pointed cartoons. His memoir explores what it means to be a satirist in a country lacking freedom, freedom of expression. Uh, before we get started, though, I want to encourage everyone who is attending that you can stay up to date with the Kennan Institute and its events and publications by visiting our website and subscribing to our blogs, The Russian <coughs> File and Focus Ukraine, as well as our podcasts, podcast, Canon X and The Russian File. For those of you watching today, uh, you can save 30% on the cost of the book by using the code CROC, capital C-R-O-C-30, on the University of Wisconsin Press website through July. Uh, again, we, we will we'll be taking your questions, so if you could send those by email at canon at wilsoncenter.org, to our Twitter at Kennan Institute, or write on our Facebook page. Please be sure to include your name and affiliation when submitting your questions. Uh, we will not be able to include your questions if you do not include that information. Let me briefly begin by introducing Dr. Dreitzer. He was born in Odessa, Ukraine, the Soviet Union, uh, as a working class into a working class Jewish family. He began his writing career as a freelancer, contributing satirical articles to leading Soviet periodicals, and also and also uh, in satirical news in the satirical newsreel the the Wick. Eventually blacklisted for writing an article critical of an important official, he emigrated to the United States, settled in Los Angeles. Uh, where he earned a PhD in Russian literature from UCLA. Since 1986, he has been a professor of Russian at Hunter College in New York City. He has published numerous books, including Forbidden Laughter, Soviet Underground Humor in 1980, and also Shush, Growing Up Jewish Under Stalin, a memoir. Uh, his work has been published in Russian, Polish, and Israeli journals, and we are delighted to have Emil here. So Emil, the floor is yours. Thank you, thank you. <coughs> um, uh, thank you for inviting me. Uh, it's a great honor to to be present to present my story of the um, uh, Soviet satire, the book of my book of this on Soviet satire to the audience. And primarily, my impetus to write this book is because there are so many misconceptions about the Soviet system for, for a variety of reasons, but primarily probably because of the Iron Curtain who worked on the both sides. I mean, we didn't know much about the West and the West didn't know much about the true you know, details of the, of the Soviet life. And primarily, even I remember that when I first told my son who grew up, born in Moscow, but grew up in America, he says, Dad, isn't it um, Soviet satire simply contradiction in terms? How to, could it be? And uh, actually, that's that's why I decided to write this book and actually to explain to me how it was possible to do. So, in effect, I would like to illustrate it just to show the magnitude of of the Soviet satire of uh, in the, in in the life of, of the country that. Um, 
to compare it, for example, with American, um, with American satirical publications. Um, so in the heyday, uh, in their heydays, National Lampoon, uh, I looked up at the time of uh, Watergate scandal, the pick of it was one million copies monthly was published at that, at that period of time, right? Then Mad Magazine had uh, also two million, okay? Crocodile regularly published every 10 days an issue, six million copies each. That means 20 millions overall. As you see, it's not nothing, and, 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 and uh, whether that's nothing to do with the scandals of, as you understand it, any country. Also, uh, starting 1961, the Mosfield Studios produced all union satirical magazine, The Week, Fitil in, in Russian. That's its logo opening. It was a tremendous popularity in the country. Usually they showed it in, before the main feature uh, shown uh, in, in the movie theaters. So uh, that's, so what, why the Soviet satire existed to begin with? Uh, it is known that Joseph Stalin, not himself, but through Malenkov who read prepared speech, uh, said uh, in 1952, we need our Soviet goggles and Saltokov Shidrin. And Saltokov Shidrin is one of the major uh, Russian satirical writers of 19th century <laughs> to write a, a book on, on his art. Uh, so in 1952. So what were the tasks of the Soviet satire? In a nutshell, to fight separate shortcomings that obstruct our movement to the shining heights of communism. Separate, that's very important. Now, so what kind, what were the targets? Rank and file in place for what? For poor work discipline and wasting time on taking long, uh, uh, breaks, uh, smoke, smoke breaks, uh, uh, poor workmanship. See the director of the uh, factory and the quality control inspector fight whether to put the, <laughs> the stamp of good quality. That was, that was a permanent kind of a uh, theft at workplace. From, because vast majority of people could not survive on their salaries. Uh, everybody stole whatever they could from, from where they can and crocodile obviously uh, fought it by ridiculing it. And in this particular case, what you see is obviously you see the worker of the entire um, factory takes it out and say, hey, after all, isn't everything in this country belongs to the working people? You know, that making fun of that kind of a, a reasoning. Cheating in the stores. Well, anyone who lived in the Soviet Union knows how <laughs> that uh, cheating in the stores was uh, prevalent primarily again, because they, they stole to put it in there uh, uh, to supplement their income. Um, uh, low, ah, the other target, low and middle management. That's also important. What? The, the usual, the bureaucratic merry-go-round or bribery. They were prevalent. Actually, it was a saying in, this, in my time in Soviet Union, if you want the, anything to move, you have to grease it. So that's obviously crocodile uh, made the sort fraud, fraud of all kinds. Why fraud to get 
bonuses. Otherwise, again, to supplement the miserly salary. So, and this what what you see is the 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 the, the cover of the crocodile. And so the official says, "What's with you? Haven't you read the report? We already took care of this harvest." In other words, the report that they already got their bonuses, and 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 so on. Um, cooking the books to get bonuses also. And that's clear instead of 10%, 100% and so on. Uh, mismanagement, that's also uh, that tremendous, specifically the next cartoon is about the new technology. It was obviously Soviet Union tried to catch up uh, with the West uh, often buying licenses for new technological equipment and so on, but but uh, it never was really, nobody was really interested to do anything with it. So I found, I found a good use of new, new technology. Obviously we see what kind of a use he found. And then again, um, obviously they open up a little bit, the crocodile um, depends on political kind of situation. The country allowed to less or more things to be, uh, attacked by uh, on, on its pages. This particular uh, cartoon, I believe it, it's 1980 in the time of Gorbachev, 1988. So it would be probably impossible to see it in my time in 1960s and 1970s when I was uh, writing for the crocodile. Uh, in the middle of operations, this is scalpel. They promised to deliver it in the third quarter of the year. Again, see that kind of things it's, it's a sign of this glassness in perestroika under gorbachev so to widen up uh, a bit of it uh, abuse of power um rudeness and high-headedness uh, of officials of again low and middle rank um uh, criticism um suppressing any criticism so little wolf says to uh <laughs> Uh, to the teacher, if you fail me now, my daddy will eat you alive. Also, um, use, using your power of, of a boss to select a secretary, not because of her um, quality of her work, but of, of her age. Well, well, which which of the secretaries should I let go? You know, things like that. So, passing the buck. It's also not taking a responsibility, always to say somebody else is uh, guilty of what that we did not uh, do this or that. And actually in Russian, uh, I wouldn't say it's a, it's a Soviet invention. It was in the following the saying in Russian, but something about Strelichnik actually goes back to 19th century at the time of the railroads started uh, sprawling out in, in the country. And they were always, who is, who is guilty? Oh, the little man, the one, you know, the, the switchman. So it actually, it means it all amounts to a switchman. Switchman is, is, a, is guilty, not, not us. Um, and then again, suppressing any criticism. Yesterday, some rabbit dirt, dirt criticized me, get it here at once. And the secretary says, here it comes, already cooked, as you see. <laughs> um, Poor medical service for population. Okay, so as you see, ambulance coming. Yes, the man you asked about used to live here a year ago. May his soul rest in peace. Late again. This 
a much later uh, edition of Crocodile, the time of, of Glasnost and Perestroika. In my time, it would be not possible to, to use it. So general, and, and of course, general and population, antisocial behavior, drunkenness is the cover of the crocodile. Um, that basically you're committing suicide, some of pizza, they say in Russia, okay? Or misbehavior of youth at night, not giving rest to population. That's, that's the, one of the most um, um, typical stories. Um, now, however, <laughs> many, many years later, I have to say that for many years, my, I look back at my work in Soviet satire and I was kind of a proud in what, in what sense. I was proud that I never wrote anything of say glory to the system. I always criticized it. And I thought I did the right thing and nothing like nothing bad would come out of it. But relatively recently, a year ago or so, I found some re in research that actually there was a hidden task of open criticism of economic targets in the Soviet press to create false facade to hide true military capabilities. Where it comes from? Uh, one of uh, my uh, colleagues, um, uh, she found the following, that in 1930s, Joseph Stalin gave the following advice to Minister of Lazar Kaganovich, who was a minister of, of um, uh, of uh, railroads system. And so, and he told him, see, why wouldn't you see that good dog is the, uh, the main paper that for the uh, railroad industry, industry and other newspapers print my, as much as possible about the sloppiness, deficiousness, deficiencies, uh, 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 glitches, shoddy work. We, we don't want those dopes abroad to see the forest for the trees. Uh, our true figures and achievements are to be kept secret, while our pretty, uh, petty problems that we have plenty, of course, should be glaringly apparent. Soviet transportation in ruins, abominable industrial output, the works. So Kaganovich couldn't believe it, said, with photographs? And Joseph Stalin said, well, why not? In our position, a subtle policy is needed. You don't win if you don't cheat. In other words, part of it, that was uh, Irina Pavlova in, uh, published in, um, uh, in, 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 the, um, in the journal Russian Studies History, she found it. So in other words, it was some also a sense of that in the West, they would accept all kinds of things uh, uh, that he uh, uh, studied talks about as, oh, the whole system is not really working. However, it uh, utmost importance was given to the military, to the military capabilities. So um, what was totally forbidden to criticize in, in Soviet press? All faults of the socialist economy had to be shown as being local and sporadic not systemic, just separate shortcomings, as they say. You cannot say, for example, that the shoe, shoes in this country is really impossible to produce. No, no, you have to say this particular factory, the shoes of this particular factory are not of good quality now. That's it. Not that the system is not working. Uh, to avoid public panic, no press reports on shortages of medicine. 
also no party apparatus is to be criticized by any paper other than Pravda, the instrument of party central committee. And by God, no criticism of Soviet foreign policy, not at all. That it means they take care of it and you just follow. And, but at the same time, when, when I was talking to my, I, I write in, in the book, when I talked to my, my friends who also participate, uh, took part in this, in this uh, satirical activity, uh, that he, we found by talking to each other that some, some mystery, some ter uh, territories were totally close to criticism, even if within the ranks that we're talking about for middle and low um, um, bureaucrats, you could not, why? For example, uh, in Brezhnev time, two Moscow regions, Baum and Perov and Krasnodar, because personal friends of Brezhnev were officially in charge of this territory. So nothing bad should have happened there, even the minor thing. Um, so what happens if a journalist oversteps the boundaries of, permitted, uh, of the permitted inventory? Well, depending on the gravity of, of his or her mistake, uh, could be just simply reprimand or be fired or the editor-in-chief to be someone to the um, Bureau of Propaganda of Central Committee. I described what happened with, in my case when I published my, um, my piece and uh, the editor-in-chief of Crocodile had to, had, had to go to the uh, Central Party Committee and fight. So now uh, in my the question how I came about it. Frankly speaking, I never thought I would do anything like that. I, you know, obviously I wanted to be, as many young people, wanted to be a writer when I uh, grew up, but I never thought that I have um, anything um, uh, to, to do with uh, satire. That's not what particularly my, my I didn't feel it's my genre. However, one of the editors of Komsomol, uh, uh, Moskovsky Komsomol is the most uh, Komsomol member of Moscow, Moscow Komsomol member. Uh, he suggested something when I came in, brought some lyrical piece. He said, why wouldn't you, why wouldn't you write some, said, oh, you're, you're from Odessa. Oh, Odessa, then why don't you write a satirical piece for us? It is assumed that Odessa, well, symbolically is like a, a capital of, of humor in the Soviet Union. All underground jokes are produced there, uh, primarily because Odessa is a multi, um, uh, a, a melting pot of many nationalities and humor was always traditionally part, part of it. So therefore, uh, he gave me um, a, a letter and I wrote some piece about uh, <laughs> uh, that why would you, um, the, 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 uh, the, the young mother came to the store and asked, why would you um, uh, uh, give me please these ounces for my baby? And the seller says, is your baby um, choleric or sanguine? Is it phlegmatic? In other words, how, why are you asking? What's his to do? Well, no, no, if he's really very energetic, the ounces will sell, would not, they will be destroyed very shortly. So that's, that was the piece that, that was published and from where we started my, my, uh, my career. But this, the real, the turning point when I published in Crocodile, this, um, um, Pelieton, we call it, shut up, scatter brain, about the play that I saw in some provincial town and um, brought it back, uh, came back to Moscow, uh, wrote a piece. The editor, uh, the 
editor-in-chief uh, read it and um, obviously everybody was approved and was and was published what we did not know none of us knew no not, nothing was against the play itself but the it turned out to be that the author of the play at the time when the the Filiaton appeared in Crocodile was untouchable because he was uh, editor-in-chief of the magazine theater that was appointee by the Minister of Culture and that means he was he was not supposed to be criticized for anything. So that's actually the, the turning point where I stopped writing for Crocodile. And I thought that, that, that my, my satirical career is over, but luckily at that time, a sapient satire started to have prominence in, in Soviet press. Why? Because in 1960, after, after the um, suppression of Czech attempt to create socialism with, with human face, uh, literary gazettes started to publish um, uh, pieces of satire that would be hidden from kind of a, uh, from, from a, a reader who doesn't read between lines. Uh, so it was the 12 chairs of a literal club. This is their logo. That's how it looked like. So uh, just for you to illustrate how this satire worked well. And they created, let's say, a, it was a humorous page, all humor, children's room. And what they published in children's room. If you, for example, it was always shortages of oranges in the Soviet Union. So they say, if you want an orange kid, if you truly have this need, get a Play-Doh in a store, make an orange or make more. That's it, huh? seemingly a children's <laughs> verse, but obviously read, those read between lines understood. Or about poor, poor quality of life altogether, shortage of food. If your bowl is scarce of soup, get yourself a bigger loop. Now looking through the loop, you will see a lot of soup. Okay, so again, for those who read between lines, it was clear what, uh, but the turning point was probably, um, here I just picked this cartoon to illustrate the, the uh, a short story, actually, I would call it in America, we call it flat fiction, very short by Andrei Kuchayev. He describes a night on the streets of Moscow and um, uh, um, uh, alcoholic, some poor alcoholic tried to catch a taxi, which was always a problem. And he sees nearby that um, uh, another fellow like him stays with outstretched hand. And he takes, you know, it's his, and he comes close to him. He is already very, very kind of almost frozen to death. He grabs him, he takes him home, put him in bed. And in the, in the morning when he wakes up, he found that he, he, he actually, he pulled, um, a monument from pedestal. And seemingly, what's the big deal? But it was a created tremendous scandal. Why? Because for every Soviet citizen, it was clear that this, <laughs> this satire was about the, this uh, Lenin's pedestal, who was always shown with this outstretched hand, like going forward to the shining communism. And, it, uh, and that's, again, an example of satire a sapien satire, satire between lines. Uh, so that was kind of the, the top what was uh, uh, possible to do. Uh, well, along the same lines, I also uh, wrote a story about Kvass, about people people uh, trying to uh, 
uh, to drink was on the streets of Moscow anyway. And um, eventually they, uh, because it's less and less, uh, somebody suggested to put some water there. Uh, eventually everybody just drink, drinks pure water, paying as a far class. So in other words, but they accept it because it's equality, you know, kind of satire on equality. So that's 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 the, the piece was also published in the um, in the um, um, literary gazette. Yeah. Uh, so that's probably what I wanted to that what my um, basic things that I describe in my book. And uh, if you have any questions, I'll be glad to answer to you. Thank you very much, Emil. Uh, a reminder, if you do have questions for the author, uh, you can send them by email at kennan at wilsoncenter.org, to our Twitter account at Kennan Institute, or right on our Facebook page. Uh, this was really just a, a great read. And uh, I'm going to start with a few questions of my own, and then we'll get to the uh, audience's question. Um, my first question, though, is really the impact of satire on the Soviet Union. I mean, you talked about what was allowed and what was not allowed. But in terms of what was allowed and all the criticisms about fraud and corruption and sector that you said, to what extent did satire really contribute to the collapse of the Soviet Union? Uh well, I, that's hard to hard to say to what extent. You, you satire, can't, obviously, you, you, obviously, you can't quantify it, but you know, they 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 were limits, but but the satire was real, and struck a chord. So, to what extent, what was that well, a part of? I understand. Well, first of all, uh, of course, this criticism. Uh, people, okay, Crocodile had uh, power in the country. In what sense? I can tell you myself, since I had this uh, Crocodile idea, after all, I, I wrote for them for, for seven, eight years. Uh, nobody wanted to be criticized on Crocodile. The moment, let's say, in the Soviet Union, when you come to any, any city, it's very hard to find a place in a hotel. But the moment I show you my Crocodile ID, they will find it for me. You understand? So in other words, it's not that was not disregarded. Absolutely not. Nobody won because they knew there will be uh, repercussions uh, from, uh, from party line and so on. They knew they, they would really don't want to spoil. They don't want to be. Uh, it, it's a big scandal for the local authorities if they get into uh, pages and the crocodile. That's no question. However, the other question that you posed, to what extent the Soviet, the, the satire was um, um, eventually, uh, not, if not led, but it was part of, I would say the following, that uh, satire of the literary gazette, of the kind that I told, the second satire, actually what really happened, it is it indicated already growing discontent with the Soviet system, that vast majority of intelligentsia did not buy all these slogans that we are building communism in, for, for in our lifetime and all of this business. The proliferation of underground humor at that time was exactly the same on the same reason. The, the, the enthusiasm that at least we, from what we know that our generation knew about back in the 20s and the, uh, it, it, it was no longer there. Nobody genuinely believed, um, when I say nobody, 
nobody of intelligence at, at the very least believed that it would be uh, anything that the, the party that for, it became clear it's a, just a way to keep power for the for the uh, party to keep power in the country no more than that the very system of it so and to that extent i would say it indicated that sooner or later it will come to a point and the party itself would understand we have to some change it has to be introduced and that brought to Gorbachev time uh, as i showed in some of the um covers of crocodile if there are much more risky much more wider kind of a object of satire open up and so on so that eventually of course it's uh, it became impossible to sustain the system. They didn't work, simply didn't work. I was fascinated, Emil, by your description of Odessa and your upbringing. And obviously, uh, Odessa indirectly played a role both in your satire and you becoming a satirist, because somehow everyone believed that if you're from Odessa, you, you yes. could be a satirist. Sure. So from your perspective, how did living in Odessa, a multinational, but a predominantly Jewish city, shape you as a as a writer and as a satirist. Well, that's the, the sustainment. I, I also always ask myself this question: How it came about? Well, I told it why I started writing satire just because by this editor from Moscow paper, once he learned them from uh, from Odessa, he assumed that, oh, then the Nimorosh Shigol, I mean, well, what are you talking about? You, you have to write the satire. You know. Why? Odessa, as you already indicated, was initially, was created by the end of 19th century by Catherine, Catherine the Great uh, to have access to the free, uh, uh, to, the, to the warm waters of the uh, Black Sea and uh, try to, to sell grain to, to Europe, to facilitate uh, selling. So she invited Jews from all over the um, Pale of Settlement to come down and help with this business. And they came and they enjoyed it tremendously because it was A, the city was built by French architects. So when I first time came to Paris, I saw, I saw it already. The, the, main, uh, the main quarters of Odessa were built by French architects. As a matter of fact, uh, everybody knows about the Pachomkin stairs, right? Which was in the movie, uh, um, Battleship Pachomkin. Is the Duke de Richelieu is the, the first mayor of Odessa and he has the plan of the city and so on. So in other words, and there are Italians live there. The, the best is the beautiful, uh, street in, in Odessa is called Italian, then later called Pushkinska, Pushkin Street and so on. So in other words, it was melting pot of over 100 nationalities. When, when Mark Twain uh, visited Odessa in, and he describes it in the Innocence Abroad, he said, when we came to Odessa, we looked, we, we looked left, we looked right. It's nothing told us away in Russia. It was America all the way. And what it is, the, the my understanding is that because of so many nationalities living both, uh, 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 next to each other, uh, humor usually ameliorates relationship between the groups. People have to live together and so on. So humor was part of kind of sustained <laughs> uh, mode of conversation. You would never say, in other words, if you say something really drastically right in the eye, it may create a, you know, a scuffling, may a fight. But if you just make a joke about it, you have an option to get out of it. You may just simply laugh and then say, oh yeah, I got it and so on and so forth. So that's why 
uh, on the streets of Odessa, where I was uh, <laughs> as, a, as a youngster walk around, nobody really talked uh, like uh, Pravda, <laughs> like like in the editorial. Everybody was just simply talking about, you know, uh, it permeated with this kind of a spirit of humor. Uh, and that, therefore, it, for me, it became natural when I started writing it. I found that I, I have it in me without really ever thinking that I have. Thank you. Uh, just a reminder, if you have questions for Emil, you can send them by email at kennan at wilsoncenter.org to our Twitter account at Kennan Institute or write on our Facebook page. And we're getting some questions already. Um, but I ha still have one more question to, uh, to at least start off with. Um, and that was um, the the ability to criticize and and um, what I want to kind of address is the question of satire and when it went too far, when you had to hold back and, is, and, and I guess the, the follow-up question is, you talked about the role of satire in the Soviet Union. Uh, is, is, is there a, an equivalent role of satire today? Or uh, in your perspective as a, as a professor of Russian literature, or was it kind of only a certain time in a certain place and in light of what has happened in the post-Soviet Union, is the role of satire diminished? That's a that's a good question because uh, the situation now it's uh, it's kind of a different. We probably never in the Soviet time you would see so much tolerance to the open criticism. Primarily because there are so much uh, so many more media. You have internet. You have uh, uh, television channels more than more than four. I remember this in the Soviet time we had only four channels, <laughs> and I remember the. the um the 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 joke i i know i lost you for some reason mm -hmm. uh well, we, we we still see you emil so go ahead uh yeah and so i remember the, this in the soviet time it was four channels uh so if if uh, let's say brezhnev is, is speaking to the you know give, gives a speech so uh you you, all channels will be you got channel from you, you switch from channel one to two it will be Brezhnev speaking uh, channel three Brezhnev speaking then channel four it will be KGB telling me go back to channel one that was the all in other words it was total control over media now it's different I now I'm sometimes amazed what kind of things were possible to let's say about the recent one about Navalny and his uh, video, it would be unthinkable in Soviet time to be, to have anything like that. So definitely, control of the media is incomparable uh, for, from from that standpoint of view. And satire, I mean, I I read um, Sorokin's book, Denya uh, Prichnika, the Day of uh, Prichnik. It, it would be totally impossible to see anything like that in Soviet time, even the most mild uh, of the time uh, that it was. So in other words, um, that's, that's uh, satire definitely is um, now, I don't think when, when by, by and large, when you have an open society, satire doesn't need it that much. Oftentimes uh, they ask, um, uh, how come in the Soviet Union you have um, uh, 
all this uh, hidden side, whatever it is. There was no parliament, you know, there was no bringing up real issues in the country. Nobody, I mean, everybody was, de was decided on top of the, uh, of the small echelon nomenclature of the, of the party, what is, what's going to be in and so on. So therefore, there was no really, <laughs> why, why bother? You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. So therefore, what I'm saying is satire in America, yes, still exists. And I remember coming back and, um, and looking at the satirical field. They published Art Buckle, for example. Art Buckle uh, was pre uh, translated into Russian and published in Pravda probably every single piece of his writing. Why? Or for this reason, he criticized CIA, criticized White House, and so on. Okay, so obviously, for us, uh, there was something else that we would only marvel. My God, what kind of a freedom they have in America if this is possible to do? See, it kind of worked the, the other way. So yes. we, we perceive, my guess, <laughs> look, 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 look what they can do. Nothing like that would be possible, of course, in the Soviet Union, no. Yeah. Great, so I'm gonna get to our audience's questions now. Uh, the first one is from Mike Rode, and he asked, can you talk more about the cartoonists in Crocodile did you know them? Was was there oops. was there a floor everyone worked together on? So did you interact with the cartoonists? Actually, I I uh, not just interact. I actually befriended one of the um, cartoonists uh, for Literary Gazette, uh, Bakhchenyan. He was very talented, very famous cartoonist who relatively recently he immigrated also he was the first to meet me when i immigrated he was the first to meet me in, in vienna airport so so what he for example what he he did he did um some other uh, maybe have opportunity so he did um uh, he worked for the uh, club of, of 12 chairs and his cartoons were of that kind of a sort of uh, I, I tried to describe the cartoon that he, he produced that had exactly this quality. It seemingly um, uh, just um, landscape and we see the sun is a little bit coming but the upper features of the sun tells us that this is Joseph Stalin. So any of us clearly understood what he trying to do. That Stalinism is on the rise, see? <laughs> That kind of style he had. In other words, you could not immediately accuse him of anything, but it, by your ability to interpret what he's trying to show. So yes, I, I knew him personally. We, we had kind of friendship between him, yeah. Um, our next question comes from Wayne Murray, who is a senior fellow at the American Foreign Policy Council. And he notes that the best satire I ever saw in the USSR in 1982 was the film Sport Lago Lotto 1982, very funny romantic comedy. I was astonished it could be made and shown. Do you recall it? And what can you tell us about it? Sport Lotto? No, yes. I, I don't remember that. First of all, I want to just remind that I, <laughs> I immigrated, I, I came to America on the eve of 1975. So whatever happened <laughs> uh, back um, in the Soviet Union was in the, especially in the first decade of my trying to uh, find footing in a new country was uh, kind of not of the optimism. No, I don't, I would definitely will check, check out this movie, but by and large, uh, yes, there were, there were kind of satirical comedies, in, uh, movie comedies, 
uh, in the Soviet Union in the period um, that we, in the period of this, uh, let's say, late 60s and early 70s. For example, I remember the brilliant hand, brilliant Ruka. And there were some things like that, that some, uh, some kind of, a, again, reading between lines. For example, a local official in Georgia, where the action takes place, the communication, he's dressed in Stalinka, means it's the format of his uniform is what is typical was in Stalin's portrait. So for us, it was clear, this is an attempt to show this, this is little Stalin. And obviously, he was also talking with accent, uh, had some mustache and so on. In other words, it was not a full, uh, it didn't look like Stalin, but it was indication that that's what, this is the little Stalin in this locality. Things like that existed not only in the press, as I described, but also in the movie industry. And and actually the the uh, the fitil the 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 week the movie also had short, very funny um, um, skits that had the kind of an implication of of criticism. One that quickly comes to my mind is that they show um, uh, uh, two uh, dispatchers sitting, and 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 one is taking a, a phone call. Uh, what should we do? Uh, one is old, one the other is young. Uh, what What do you want it to do? Well, move for this. Um, uh, this is a railroad station. Move this um, car wagon to the number five uh, rails, and he just hangs up doing nothing. The younger one says, "Why, why are you not? We are not rushing, doing something. Don't worry, let's play." And they play domino. <laughs> Meanwhile, during working time, of course. Then again, the phone call says, well, okay. So finally, he says, this, this, this guy, in other words, the implication that those, these, those in command don't know what they're doing, but eventually everything stays the way it was. There was no need. So he's an experienced man, knows that this is not, in other satire like that. But it was at uh, the same time reduced by, by presenting the man who gave this command. He finally walks in, if I describe it. He is shown with the um, uh, with the sign of a higher education. In other words, he's a newly um, uh, a newly uh, got a new just just got his higher education, and he doesn't know yet what life about. But it was clear that up to this point, there was implication. It's not about him. The whole system is not working. Great. Um, I have the next question from Victoria Spoken. And she asked, as a follow-up, were there tensions and factions within Crocodile about the acceptable boundaries of satire? Well, of course, we, of course, there were there were tensions, and uh, there were some much more devoted to to the system than others. Uh, as a matter of fact, <laughs> to the extent I may bring up that uh, when um, it just happened that uh, in 1980, when I published, uh, when uh, a small publishing house in America published collection of Soviet underground jokes that I, uh, that I compiled to, together. Um, there, <laughs> Crocodile, then I was reported later on, uh, Crocodile uh, published, um, yeah, and then, then I was, you know, after the book came out, it, it got some uh, kind of visibility, Mark Griffin show, then Washington Post uh, uh, published uh, uh, 
interview with me and in in the course of interview i you know i said obviously asked the question about sort of satire and the rest of it they then trans the voice of america translated this into russian and been to to the soviet union and then later on they within the crocodile there were at least two i don't there is no need to use name a journalist who said oh we should reply to him and they did reply editorial from crocodile telling that they don't know me, who I am, I'm just pretending I have anything in connection with satire and things like that. So in other words, yes, there were more people devoted to the system and some other that here eventually could not. So I know some of my colleagues of that time stayed in Russia and until um, now, some immigrated uh, like me later on. And so that was obviously, not everybody was kind of a, <laughs> uh, many of them took, took part in it cynically, not believing at all that anything like that can be salvaged in, of the Soviet system. Uh, just a reminder that if you have questions for our speaker, you can send them by email at kennan at wilsoncenter.org to our Twitter account at Kennan Institute or write on our Facebook page. Um, You've addressed this a little bit, but one person asks, what specific qualities made satire entertaining for the public? And when a piece of satire landed too well for the public, did it have a potential to backfire with the Soviet authorities? Well, you have personal experience with that. But, yeah, uh, well, that's what I'm saying. That, yes. But when, when my piece of this uh, about the play was published, I got many uh, <laughs> compliments from readers. Uh, they, they found it funny that, because it actually it was a, um, a spoof of uh, the play that I saw uh, that was written. So, so they they enjoyed the, the you know the writing itself. And so nobody of us thought that would be a, a problem. The problem was simply because of the um, uh, of the uh, who was the author of it, and that what what's really interesting to me, and I still have some mystery about it, that the editor in chief of the Crocodile, he went several times to I was reported by people who worked there to the Central Committee trying to defend defend his publication, and eventually um, there was practically it was divided between. Furseva, the Minister of Culture of that time, to whom this uh, nomenclatura of the, of the author of the play, and uh, whoever was in charge of the um, propaganda department, right, to, to whom the editor of, of Crocodile appealed. So eventually they decided, well, yeah, and then they, it's, it's a long story, you, you read the book, you know, that I, I show how it was done, not directly, but through publication in, in Literary Gazette, if you remember. Right. Uh, and how they, they try to, to, to manipulate it and so on. So in other words, uh, readers would, many readers, it, it was popular because it's not, 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 not much kind of a comedy in the Soviet Union as such. There was no institutional stand-up comedy to begin with, uh, none in the Soviet time. So there was nothing nothing of, of that so obviously every good comedy was a tremendously population because it was all we all need to to cheer up from time to time at least right and that that obviously yes. crocodile primarily was served this purpose not because people read it and say oh what this was allowed was no because cartoons were written it was the best cartoonist in the country worked for crocodile 
And I don't think they really cared much because they, they had the opportunity to, earn, to make a living, to show, to do something that they enjoyed doing it, you know, the, from purely professional point of view. So what can I say? Yeah, it, it was primarily food for some entertainment, some, some joy of life that was not too much on a, on a daily basis. So I have a question about uh, your chosen profession when you came to America. Um, clearly, uh, you had been discriminated uh, against in a variety of ways as a Jew in, Jew in the Soviet Union, and yet you gravitated to the Russian language. And so what made you decide that, uh, obviously, you had some advantages, you spoke Russian, et cetera, et cetera, but what made you when you came to America, decide that Russian literature was something that you well, wanted to specialize. Well, the, 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 I understand what you're saying, but I never, I never equated a Soviet system with with Russian because I grew up in in Russian culture. There's no question about who I did. I read uh, anything? Uh, uh, yes, of course, I read uh, uh, Sholem Aleichem translated into into Russian. Uh, but that is as, as, as much I had exposure to the Jewish culture. Otherwise, what Pushkin, Lermontov? I mean, I, I grew up totally uh, mm-hmm. on, on Russian culture. So for me, Russian culture was familiar. Tolstoy, mm-hmm. Dostoevsky, Chekhov, and I tried to write. Obviously, I, I tried to imitate not the uh, Sholem Aleichem stories because they were full of uh, kind of uh, Jews that seemingly already in the past and so on. I won't, you know, there was some kind of, and that's recently that we would talk about with friends. It was some kind of still kind of a instilled like uh, the vector of going into the brighter world. It's not because of the communism, no, but because of the uh, enlightenment. The spirit of enlightenment still was alive in under kind, kind of underpinning of the people's desire. So in Russian literature, whatever it was, obviously the best of Russian literature was uh, humanistic. It was full of kind of a, a attempt to overcome uh, the miserable life that, that exists and so on. So for me, I would, obviously I knew uh, Russian literature well and, and the opportunity came up simply because uh, a friend of my, one of my relatives, to sh- I, I brought out of the country clippings of my publication just from my own memory, but it, it played the role because they, they showed they needed graduate students at, at UCLA and they looked and they invited me to teach Russian and to be mm-hmm. part of and then enroll as a teaching assistant and, and enroll in the in school. So for me, it was a kind of a, a natural um, natural way of uh, to find my footing in America by going something that I knew uh, quite well. Yeah. Uh, this is a question from Eva Winderman. Um, she asks whether your books are also published in Russia and sold there, and what your action was in the Soviet, in, in the Russian Federation? Uh, no, you won't believe it. I, yeah, as you know, I published quite, quite a number yes. of, of books. Uh, I never made an attempt to, well, there is one book that I, I uh, uh, thought it would be good to be published in Russia. It's the, uh, unlike any other book that I wrote, uh, that was a biography of a Soviet spy that I met many years ago, a year before I left Russia. That eventually, uh, some 20 years later, I, I published it. It was published at, at Northwestern University Press. It was translated into Polish. And the um, grandson of the 
main character. I mean, this, it's a nonfiction book. Uh, he, he lives in Moscow. And so I sent him an, a number of copies of the book and he took it and he took it to a number of publishing houses in Moscow to see whether we'd be interested to translate and publish in Russian, because seemingly it's, it's all a Russian story. It's about Russian hero, about men who try to do the best for the country, but wind up to be in Gulag for 16 years. And they told him, no, they're not interested. And I clearly understand why. Because the official biography today, if you go on, on site of the uh, FSB of Dmitry Bristolyotov, that yeah, he was uh, some mistake were made. There was not a word how horrifically he was tortured. Not a word that he spent 16 years in, in Gulag and barely survived because he came out and so on. So in other words, probably my assumption is that nobody knows the, wants to, to know the truth, the full truth of, of what, how the country paid back to its heroes back in the, in the 30s, despite the fact that he he served the country, he provided with four-year plan of rearmament of Germany. Uh, Mr. He, he did everything he possibly could, risking his life. And that was the payback. So that's my assumption that <laughs> they don't want. But I, I'm not making any effort to, uh, I would not say no, of course, but I would not make any efforts to offer to, uh, to publish any of my books. And, uh, well, primarily, um, some of my scholarly books, I mean, obviously, like about humor, making war not love, uh, gender and sexuality, Russian humor. It's a study of Russian culture as it represents itself in, in its humor or ethnic humor in Russia, um, also taking penguins to the movies, right? It's also about sociological studies, it's scholarly. So scholars read it. I know that, that uh, you know, of course we know uh, scholars, scholars citation, they, yeah, I know who and when, which book quotes, I mean, who reads my, my work in sites and so on and so forth, but I'm, I'm not making any effort to, to be published there. I, I don't know. Uh, this is a follow-up question that you've kind of addressed, but I'm going to ask it again. Can you comment on the censorship of satire in Putin's Russia? Oh, uh, the only thing that I know that before Putin came to power in during Yeltsin time, there was this satirical, very biting, television show called Cookley, Puppets. I, I remember Cookley, yes, it was, okay. it was fighting, yes. <laughs> and the moment, and the moment <laughs> they went, one of the puppets who was Putin, <laughs> mm -hmm. the show was closed. Yes. That's so much for, for satire. In other words, still thin skin, you know, <laughs> about mm -hmm. that, that, that kind of a thing. So in and, 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 and that respect. But otherwise, as I say again, there are so many other open, uh, venues of, of criticism. Uh, satire usually is needed when, when you cannot do it openly, you know, when you have to find some way to make fun of something, really ridicule, or, I mean, there's no need. Uh, so there, there are now proliferation of it. I think those in power became smarter. They decided, do we really need to separate, the, to give this food to the West telling what we suppress them? Uh, let's go, vast majority still support the system, so why would why we should bother? I think it's just a much smarter approach to it, <laughs> in my sense. Uh, here's a question from Naringa uh, Klumbitya uh, from Miami University at Oxford, Ohio. And she asked, what were the relationships between the, uh, the satirists in Russia and the satirists in different republics? 
Well, it's a good question because, as I mentioned, crocodile. There were also spin-offs in in several republics. Uh, for example, in Ukraine, the journal of the same kind was called Periods Pepper. Uh, in uh, Tatar, even it's not a republic at that time, a part of just autonomic republic, was a Scorpio Chayan called, and I published some pieces there as well. So there was a, a kind of obviously they looked up to crocodile of kind of what kind of things. Uh, they, um, they, they, they could, they, what did they could do? But it was not just crocodile. Absolutely, it was uh, something in Armenia, I believe, in Georgia, and in some other republics. They, they had the same kind of a crocodile of, in the language of the of the republic. So you were actually changed, uh, trained as an engineer, and yes. um, and a, a scientific background. So what did, what, how did you think that you could actually become a satirist? But what, what was I, it? As I said, I never knew. You never <laughs> well, knew. First of all, be, I started, well, I, I, my degree, as you know, uh, because there was little choice of my time right after Stalin's death to get uh, um, education in, in uh, literature, journalism, so on. So uh, my mother said, first, you'll become an engineer, then do whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's exactly what what really happened. So when I got my degree in electrical engineering from Odessa Polytechnical Institute, I worked. Uh, it, it was customary. I mean, not customary. Plan of but you you go to work for three years for the any of this wherever state sends you. So they sent me to Kiev, and uh, in Kiev, um, I worked as a foreman in one of the uh, local uh, gas industry. Um, uh, settings. Uh, but at the same time, I, I always wanted to be a writer. So at that time, I remember I, uh, I met a journalist from Ukrainian radio. And as we walked, I told her some of these stories that I heard from my father. And my father was a house painter, as I described in my book. So he obviously he was privy some time to uh, a life in the family. <laughs> and he told me this uh, story about how children, uh, spoiled children were, were fed in Odessa. So in, in the, 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 the child refused to eat anywhere just in a, in a, in a streetcar, that's all. So the mother would take uh, Kasha and, and the child to the streetcar and every time, every stop, <laughs> she would say, well, for mama, for papa, and for the stop of Rosa Luxemburg, of the street, and so on. In other words, that kind of a funny, what really happened. She, and he didn't invent, he simply told me this. So when I told her this story, she says, very, very funny, let's, let's, she translated into Ukrainian and was beamed on red. So it's my, my first introduction. And as you know, the bug uh, bits you, and I always wanted to be a writer, so that's why Again, I wrote some lyrical pieces and the one that happened in Moscow, Moscow paper, it actually was a lyrical, kind of a short lyrical story that I brought. And, but the, I repeat myself, but the editor, the moment he heard I'm some, you have some accent. I say, yeah, I'm from Odessa. Oh, then you have to write us a satirical That's the whole thing started. That I was sort of derailed, if you wish. <coughs> so, so, so we have one last uh, technical question from, uh... Errol Henderson at Penn, at Penn State University. Um, and he asked, one satirical joke is a party apparatchik comment, uh, commending the greatest inventor of the 20th century, comrade Rega Spatov. 
which is the abbreviation of the of registered U.S. Patent Office, uh, evoking Soviet expropriation of Western technology. Uh, what was the source of this, and do you know anything about it? No, I've I'm, I'm never heard of it. I'm sorry. No. Okay, that's okay. Um, well, we're coming to an, the end of our hour, and it was just a fascinating conversation about your experiences, uh, both in the Soviet Union and in the United States. Um, I guess my last question is your decision to emigrate. Uh, how, how did you come to the decision that you needed to emigrate? And did you think that you would still be somehow attached to Russian culture when you came to the United States? Or did you anticipate a clean break? Well, it's a very good question from, for one for that vast majority of people do not know, and that's why I wrote it in my book, that it was a highly risky decision even to apply for immigration at that time. Why? Because the moment you apply for immigration, you tell to the authorities, you never can be trusted anymore. That's it. So that means end of your career, wherever you are. At best, you can find, uh, if you have skills, uh, work as a plumber or as an uh, elevator operator, things like that. That's it. So it was risky. At the same time, exactly what the question you asked, what I'm going to do? Because I parted with my engineering profession uh, way like 10 years before, before I actually immigrated, because I, um, uh, I, I started, I, sw I got a job at the as the editor of the publishing house Niedra, technical publisher. I edited book, uh, technical books, but I never kind of experienced. And obviously America seemed, we all talked about America, the country of such advanced technology. How come I can survive even if I knew something about it? or <laughs> still remember. So it was an extremely, extremely risky undertaking. And frankly speaking, what really helped me, and I believe I put it in the book, that I saw an American movie by Stanley Kramer, uh, Bless the Children and the Beasts. And, and this one hour, while I watched this movie, and this about the group of teenagers who were outraged that the, uh, the buffaloes are shot from kind of a point blank uh, by, by, for entertainment. And, and then at night they, they come and open up the, um, uh, the space for them to, to run away and they don't. And I remember sitting there and then thinking, oh my God, my God, I'm like this buffaloes. I'm an animal. I'm having a chance to run away and I'm still sitting it. Next day, I thought that I would not be able to see myself in the mirror. That's what I did. And I decided no matter what will happen, I have to. So whatever happened to me in America was a pure, <laughs> totally unexpected. And I had never plans whatsoever. I just thought getting out just to be able to see myself in the mirror and not to be spit on my, myself. Well, well, thank you very much, Emil, for your discussion today, for this excellent book. Uh, I didn't live in the Soviet Union. I, I, I visited it for a week, but indeed it brought back a lot of memories nevertheless. So it <laughs> is just a, a great read. Uh, again, if you want to purchase the book, you can use the code CROC, C-R-O-C 30, on the University of Wisconsin Press website and save 30%. So, Emil, it was a great pleasure to have you here to discuss uh, your book. And to our audience, we look forward to uh, your future attendance at Kennett Institute events. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you.